0: Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman.
1: Welcome back to Think Humanities podcast, and welcome to Katie Yoakam, Katie Yoakum's fiction poetry and essays have appeared in Salon, the Louisville Review, and other places. Uh, She is also, uh, for her short fiction, been nominated for the Pushcart Prize. Her poetry has been uh, translated into Bulgarian, uh, and she has a new novel out that we're going to to talk about today, Three Ways to Disappear. Uh, She's Uh, holds an MFA in writing from Spalding University. Yay, everybody that listens to the Think Humanities podcast knows of uh, my MFA from Spalding and my fondness and love for the university. She uh, co-directs the uh, Spalding at 21C Reading Series in Louisville, and she serves on the board of the Kentucky Women's Writers' Conference. And at Spalding, she is the Associate Director of Spalding's Low Residency MFA in Writing Program, Katie, welcome.
0: Thank you so much, Bill. I am delighted to be here with you.
1: Well, you just told me a, a moment ago that your um, official book launch for Three Ways to Disappear is uh, in the middle of July, and yes. I know uh, you're excited about uh, the novel. We're going to talk a little bit about it first and then a little bit about your writing life and we'll finish up with some other details uh, for folks, but um, why tigers and, uh, why, um, and when did you begin to work on the, the concept for this, uh, really fascinating, uh, work that you've done?
0: Well, um, I'm, I'm smiling here. The answer to the first question is, um, that you, you, uh, fortunately for all of us, you don't get to pick your obsessions mm-hmm. and, um. Since I was a little girl, I've had um a a real fascination with big cats. Um and it started um, you know, before I can even remember. Um I, I do know when I was a little girl I was um fascinated by the movie Born Free, um, which of course is lions, not tigers, but um I kind of thought that I grew out of my big cat obsession. I thought, you know, I had left it behind when I became an adult. Um But that misconception was completely blown away back in, I think it was 2004 when uh, a tigress at the Louisville Zoo had a litter of cubs. And from the moment I first learned of their existence, I knew that uh, this sounds kind of wild, but I I knew it was gonna change my life and and it did. Um, I began visiting those cubs, every week, more, more often than that, if I, if I could. And, um, so I had, uh, I had this focus, um, on the tigers on the, the, you know, this specific tiger family at the zoo. And, um, it kind of, it, um, it was really lovely. It was a very joyful thing to go see them and watch them grow. Um, and over time, um, uh, my fascination with tigers, led me to do some research and to start to learn more about them. Um, And uh, at some point, the idea for the novel just kind of sprang out of all of that. And uh, yeah, so I actually began writing the first pages of the novel back in 2005. And I'd say I got about 50 pages in and then I realized that I didn't know how to write about tigers in in the wild. Now, I, I think I could have done a fine job if I were setting it at a zoo, in the states. But I didn't know how to write about tigers in the wild, and that's what led me to realize that I needed to uh, to take a trip. I needed to travel to India to do the research, and and I did that at the beginning of 2006, and. Um, that was absolutely life changing and and um, informed. You know that trip has informed my writing on this novel for you know for all the years that followed.
1: 2006 is uh, quite some time ago. Um, it it and, is, uh, but I, I want you to you uh, that's that's interesting. You went with the uh, intention um, of continuing your writing and continuing uh, your concept for this novel and tell me how uh, the country and what you observed and whether or not you um interacted with tigers uh was was uh, a, an influence on on what now is published
0: oh absolutely um what what's amazing to me looking back on it from this perspective is how completely that trip um imbues the novel Um, it has influenced just about every part of it you know i i went thinking i'm gonna go to some national parks some tiger reserves and i'm going to see some tigers and that was that's maybe only a slight over oversimplification that that was my goal Um, and I, I went and I did and seeing the tigers themselves was amazing and wonderful and and exciting and and really unforgettable uh, to see these animals in the wild and they're they're pretty habituated to. Um, jeeps driving around and so they you know they don't scatter if a jeep approaches they just ignore it um so we were able to get pretty close and we were able to see um several different tigers at different times of day doing different things um and that absolutely uh shows up in the book um in fact there are chapters that i originally wrote um originally from the tiger's point of view, um, based on those um, experiences, I eventually changed them and they now appear as journal entries um, from the perspective of Sarah, my protagonist, who is in India working in tiger conservation. Um, but the, what I didn't expect was that the time I spent, especially in the rural villages surrounding the parks, would influence the book so thoroughly. I went to these villages kind of having a general understanding that these the presence of these villages surrounding the the Tiger Reserve is really problematic. Um, The villages tend to be quite poor. Um, The people who live there are literally competing with tigers for resources like water, like, um, uh, well, the the, um, villagers are grazing their animals inside the boundaries of the national park, which is disruptive to the wildlife. The villagers are cutting down um, trees for firewood. trees that are inside the national park and it's it's easy from a distance to sort of vilify people who are are doing that but in person being there being in the villages meeting people and seeing um the way that they live their lives um made me realize first of all that they certainly didn't have a choice Um, and that living in such close proximity to the park and to the tigers is, is really a fraught situation for them. Um, and um, even some of the activities that we would really frown on, like um, uh, sometimes the villagers uh, will, will poach a tiger, um, either, either uh, an animal that has been raiding their livestock or an animal that they want to try to sell for the body parts. Um, even that is, while certainly uh, something that is horrific and I would never condone, I, I was able to see how understandable it is um, for people in a situation where they have so little choice and so few options in their lives. Are so
1: there laws um, in India against that?
0: There are um, laws in India against that absolutely. what um, to, to poison a tiger, to trap a tiger, to sell a tiger's body parts. it's all illegal um, but you know like anything there's there's incentive to do it. if um, if you depend on your livestock for your livelihood and your livestock is being um, killed by tigers, you might not care that it's against the law to to try to kill the tiger to save your livestock and well,
1: then if uh, you don't mind let's deviate from the the novel just for a moment and let me ask you about the the ecological environmental concern um, and, and what you've done in the novel uh, some of the um i really appreciate the uh the the clever and well-written blurbs that some people have uh and the publisher has included uh, one of those uh, is uh, this is a story not just about saving the tigers, but ourselves, and we'll get to the ourselves in a moment. But as far as uh, what's happening to tigers are uh, how endangered are there? Uh, there seems to be a controversy, as you know, just uh, recently there was a Kentucky woman who caused quite a controversy posting a uh, Facebook photo of a giraffe of all things that she had killed uh, shot mm. and even made a a gun bag uh, out of the mm. skin um ha- where are tigers in in that uh the animal chain of um of, of being uh, something that we should should work so hard to protect
0: right um tigers are highly endangered um At the beginning, to put it in perspective, at the beginning of the 19th century, so what, 120 years ago, there were about 100,000 wild tigers in the world. And they had a huge range all over Asia, north to south, east to west. They were everywhere. And then came um, the advent of better weapons. And human population growth and um a trade in their body parts. And uh now tigers are um are terribly endangered. Currently, the current census worldwide is uh 3,890 tigers, wild tigers alive in the world. That's down from a hundred thousand just over a century ago. So they're terribly endangered, and what's um, What's worse is that the efforts to preserve them and to protect them are constantly up against um, really big problems. Um, the most benign of them, I guess, is human population growth. So what you have is encroaching, uh, human human populations encroaching on tiger territory, and that certainly does a lot of damage. Um, you end up with genetic islands where populations of tigers are cut off from each other and so they become isolated um but then there's the trade in the body parts which is really um really a tough one because they are um you know right up there with the trade in in um Right up there with drug smuggling, right up there with human trafficking, you have the poaching and killing of tigers and other wildlife. But tigers in particular, because they are such a charismatic animal, um, there's quite a market for their body parts. People use them uh, for for medicine. People use them um, in ways that... um, we might consider superstitious i uh one of the things that i found that was really interesting in my research is that the um sanskrit word for tiger is viagra
1: you're kidding me
0: i'm not kidding you so um so you can see that there's there's a, a a market for their body parts and they go for um a lot of money and Where there's that incentive to greed, um, the tigers are in tough shape. So, so yeah, they, they really need our protection. They really need good laws, good laws to be enforced.
1: So tell me about Sarah Devon.
0: Sarah Devon is my protagonist she uh was raised as a a child a young child in india with her her siblings a brother and sister um her father was a doctor um doing work in india and um, they had a happy family childhood in india until there was a a tragedy uh, when she was seven her twin brother um, died and it really tore the family apart and um uh, her mother took her and her sister back to the States. They um, grew up and Sarah became a, a traveling journalist. Um, at the beginning of the book, uh, she she packs it in with her, her life as a journalist and she decides to return to India, partly to work to save the wild tigers, um, but also to try to heal the past, which has continued to haunt her family. So Sarah goes to India, and she rapidly becomes involved in the work of saving wild tigers. Um, And she uh, takes her work very seriously at some point in the book. She actually has um, a a very unplanned encounter with a tiger that um, sort of provides a turning point in the book. Um, I, I won't say more about it than that. Um, but she's, she's very devoted to that work, very invested in it. And going back for a second to what I said earlier about the villagers in the park, in, you know, surrounding the park, her work trying to save the tiger eventually involves some of those villagers in, um, creating a women's collective to try to create some economic, um, development that could help the villagers uh, reduce their dependence on, on the resources in the park. So, and and that's really true to what I found when I went there. You know, you cannot save wild tigers in a vacuum. You have to address the needs of the people who are also um, living in that same geography, live, sharing a landscape with the tiger, sharing resources with the tiger. So um, that's, that's Sarah's place in the novel. Um, I can say more about that if you have specific questions. Um, Quinn is, uh, Sarah's sister living a really different life from Sarah. Sarah is sort of the, um, the, uh, the footloose, um, person traveling around the world. And Quinn has really put down deep roots, uh, in middle America. Actually, I have her living right here in um, in Kentucky, in Louisville. She's raising a family. Um, she has twins of her own, um, like uh, Sarah and Marcus until Marcus died in, in the story. And Quinn is... Um, quite uh quite fearful at this point in her life her own twins are the age that Sarah and Marcus were when when Marcus died and her own son um, has a potentially life-threatening illness and so she's very much trying to hold things together for her family she's trying basically to ward off chaos um. at the same time as Sarah is sort of embracing chaos by, you know, uprooting her life, going off to India to this completely unknown adventure.
1: Uh, I want you to read uh, a, a section here just a minute, but I want to remind folks on uh, Think Humanities podcast that we're speaking today with Katie Yoakum, who is the associate director of Spalding University's low residency MFA program and writing program. Uh, she is celebrating, along with all of us, uh, the publication of her new novel, Three Ways to Disappear, her first novel, her debut novel, and I know she's uh, excited about that. Uh, Katie, why don't you tell us a little bit about, um, kind of set up your reading, and then uh, uh, read from Three Ways to Disappear.
0: Sure. Um Yes. So this passage comes fairly early in the novel. Sarah has just arrived in India. Um, She's just met her new colleagues in the tiger conservation um, organization that she's working for. And they are um, off for their first um, dawn, uh, pre-dawn drive through uh, Ranthambore National Park, where Sarah's part of the book is set. So it's a, it's a beautiful national park in a, um, a landscape that's full of um, ancient ruins, fortresses and temples and so forth. Uh, but they are, they're off uh, in the the morning darkness to, um, to look for tigers. And so I'll pick it up. They are, they're in the park. She's in the Jeep with several of her colleagues and um, uh, someone makes an appearance. So here we go. For 40 minutes, they waited in the biting air. Sanjay and Hari exchanged a few quiet words about Hari's children, then fell silent so as not to scare off the animals. The engine ticked intermittently as it cooled. Sarah thought the membranes inside her nose might freeze and shatter. For a time, she listened to the pressured pulsing in her ears to take her mind off her fingertips, burning with chill despite her gloves. A hoopoe stalked across the road, its headdress of black-tipped feathers swaying. Sanjay handed Sarah his copy of Birds of the Indian Subcontinent. As she read the field guide by the red beam of her penlight, something shifted in the atmosphere to her right. Without moving, she slid her eyes in that direction. And there he was, a tiger, standing alongside the jeep. She could have reached out and touched him. In the gray half-light, his body blended into the forest like a ghost. He turned his head and looked right into her eyes. Then he stepped past her into the headlights, and Sanjay whispered, tiger, 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 and the four of them rose to their feet. In the light, he was no ghost, but a big, glossy male, long and lean, close enough that Sarah could see the individual hairs in his fiery orange coat. His breath turned to smoke as it hit the air. Without taking her eyes off the animal, Sarah raised her camera. Something about the angle of the tiger's shoulder seemed eloquent, as if all his power and grace originated there. The backs of his black ears sported white spots that stared back like eyes, then disappeared as he flicked his ears backward to judge the jeep's proximity. He had registered their presence, that much was clear, but he had already measured them up and decided they weren't worth bothering about. He sauntered down the middle of the track, unhurried but purposeful, stopping every few feet to spray his scent on a tree or bush. Twenty feet past the jeep, he reared up and placed his forepaws on a tree trunk, stretching easily six feet up. In profile, his eye glowed amber, as if lit from within. His tail swished the dust as he pulled his claws through the bark, which squealed and groaned under his mauling. Hari started the engine and the tiger turned his head, his eyes transforming into an unearthly electric green. He pulled his black lips into a demonic snarl, wrinkling the skin of his nose and cheeks. His long canines gleamed. Then he dropped silently to all fours and disappeared into the trees. Sanjay turned to Sarah and grasped her hand in victory. God is smiling on you, he said. And in fact, so was Sanjay himself. That was Akbar, the resident male. To see him in your first hour in the park, it's unheard of. Later that morning, back in her apartment, she thought about that moment. God is smiling on you. People didn't usually talk to her that way, but she liked it that Sanjay did.
1: So there's um, a little uh, mystery, some excitement, and maybe the... uh beginning of a relationship of some sort there that uh, is in the novel correct
0: exactly okay. yes uh,
1: yep. you know our, our our good friend mentor former director of the program at spaulding cena uh, jeter naslin um, has uh, asked such um, a good question in her review of the novel that if you don't mind i'm going to borrow right from from that, and um, she writes uh, whether in India or Kentucky. How does the traditional family unit both imprison and sustain its members? So, without giving away too much, can you just uh, uh, address that um, in in what your in how your novel unfolds?
0: Sure. Um- And uh, if I don't uh, take this where you're wanting me to take it, just uh, you can ask me again. Um, So the traditional family unit, Sarah has essentially, um, before the book begins, she has decided essentially to sever her relationship for the most part with her, her family of origin. She has, not well, she hasn't severed it completely, but she's, she's taken off, she's left, she's taken on a career as a, a globetrotting journalist. And so she's basically a, a, a visitor in the lives of her, her mother and her sister and her sister's um, young family. So um, Sarah has basically taken an escape route there. And um, that decision sort of evolves over the course of the book as she returns to India, confronts the past a bit, and realizes that those bonds really need healing and resolution. And she particularly reaches out to her sister Quinn to try to establish a deeper relationship than she had allowed for um, up to now. Um, with, with the death of her brother, um, her twin brother, when she was seven, she really began to withdraw from her family and now she's reversing course on that. Mm-hmm. Um, Quinn, uh, the sister at home with the young family is, um, she's very devoted to her family. She takes a fairly traditional, um, Approach uh, to the family unit. Um, she's very involved in raising her children, but she's also a bit frustrated by um, the limitations that uh, that that role provides her. Um, she's an artist, and her artwork begins to suffer as her concern for her for her family, particularly her son, who's ill. Um, increases, and as her anxiety about what's going on with her sister Sarah in India increases, her artwork um, suffers, her marriage begins to suffer as she's um, uh, increasingly entangled in, in these worries and anxieties. And she's also close to her mother, who's a bit of a complicated figure and a bit of a difficult figure and fairly demanding. And all of those relationships sort of tug at Quinn and um ask more for her from her than she's really able to give without um costing herself something Mm
1: -hmm. well interesting and the novel is just um um i i don't think until we had this discussion did i um and now i'm reading some of your acknowledgments there and seeing some people that we we both share a, a kinship with um i don't really Think I realized how um, it, it makes you think about the tiger in ways that maybe ordinary folks don't do that if they're if they're not as interested in in that as you are. Um, so, you know, I think of of um, of so many people, and I I, I, I say this as a um, a compliment and and sort of with some envy too, Katie. Uh, oh. That I don't know if I could name anyone else other than somebody who's worked in a bookstore for uh, all of their life, who has attended more author readings, <laughs> had exposure to as many authors and writers and and poets as you have uh, in your association with Spalding and the MFA program. It must have been a a wonderful uh, sort of uh, bedrock for you to uh, to continue to. Uh, at every residency, twice a year, and then throughout the year, to have these great people that you mentioned in your acknowledgments, uh, including the aforementioned uh, Sina Jeter Um and 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 the other folks that you've worked with. Now, the the director Kathleen Driscoll. It must have um, it it must have been a wonderful. I mean, you, you've been. You've been at the university level with this novel for years, haven't
0: you? <laughs> I, I have been at Spaulding um, since I graduated in 2003 uh, from the MFA program. I've, I've been working there. And it's been you know, the, the, the honor and the pleasure of a lifetime to be in that community and to see over the years, so many of not only the faculty members, but the alumni like you, Bill, um, I was there for, for your reading when you um, came out with your book, but to see um, the, the way that, that, that writers, that, um, that, that good writers, wonderful writers, approach their writing and approach their um their readings and approach the way that they support their books once they come out um i've i've learned so much from observing the dedication and the achievements of some amazingly talented writers Mm -hmm. and um beyond that i've i've there's a lot of longitude there i've i've been friends with and, and colleagues with uh, some of these writers for, you know, coming up on 20 years now, and it's, it's been a life-changing experience, and I count myself incredibly fortunate.
1: Well, as we finish up, uh, tell us just very briefly about uh, some changes uh, at Spalding University and the MFA program. Uh, you've been a big part of that, and, and that will begin very soon.
0: Right. So beginning this fall, we are accepting students into a new program that we've just brought on board to accompany the the MFA program that's been in existence since 2001. So the MFA program uh, in creative writing is absolutely still our flagship program, but in addition, now we have a Master of Arts in Writing. Um, and this is a degree that is about half of the, um, the time commitment uh, of the MFA program. The MFA program is four semesters. The MA in writing is just two semesters, more like a, a traditional master's degree. Um, and the MA in writing... Um, is also branching out into something new that's exciting for us. In addition to having creative writing tracks, we also are introducing a professional writing track there. And that's for people who are using their writing professionally and wanting to um, uh, become better, to become exposed to more avenues for the possibility of writing professionally. um, And, to um, do this in 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 the company of a lot of people who are fully dedicated to their writing, whether they're students or whether they're the faculty members. Um, so we're we're now accepting applications for our first incoming class in the MA in Writing. Um, the The application deadline is August first, and the class. Um, begins, actually, we're on a a bit of uh, an unusual schedule, but um, it's a low residency program, just like the MFA, and the class will begin with a residency in Louisville in November. Um, So that's 10 days on campus at Spalding in Louisville, followed by um, six months of independent study in which the the students are working one-on-one with a faculty member, focusing very much on their own projects, their own work. Um so we're really excited about that. We're excited that the MA students can come into Spalding into the what we're now calling the School of Creative and Professional Writing. They can get their MA, their MA and um let that be it or they also have the option to then matriculate into the mfa program and and just keep going for another couple of semesters and end up with two degrees uh the ma and the mfa um for really about the same cost as the uh mfa program uh alone so it's an option that we wanted to create to provide more opportunity um for people uh who may not have the time for the for the full MFA or may have a different angle on their interest in writing. Um, We're really excited about it.
1: Well, Katie, you've been a delight uh, for sharing uh, your time and and your passion uh, about writing and about uh, your new novel, uh, which will uh, be out in an official launch. And if you will Uh, Tell us, uh, you're going to be at Carmichael's in Louisville. What is that date again, please?
0: Yes, I'll be at Carmichael's on August 1st, um, and that's at, uh, I believe, 7 p.m. That's a Thursday night.
1: And uh, the book will be available at Carmichael's. It's already available, um, or will soon be, where you uh, buy your books and for people Uh, either ordering or going to, we prefer they go to Carmichael's or one of the other great uh, Indies uh, uh, that will be carrying the book. And I'm sure it's going to do really well. And we uh, thank you for joining us today.
0: Well, Bill, thank you so much for having me. It has been a complete pleasure talking with you.
1: Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky's stories for 46 years. The podcast was produced and edited by Morgan Lowe. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.